Okay, the subject is the same, redemption. Somebody took a copy of the new handout and said, well, this is the same thing we had last week, you know. And it looks like it, and you have that little listing at the top of every one that we do together. If, if you've not noticed, as we cover it, we take it from a bold print to a regular print, and this will kind of let us be able to visualize where we have been and where we're going. Redemption, a comprehensive term employed in theology with reference to the special intervention of God for the salvation of man. God intervened in history and the incarnation to redeem man. And then God intervenes in, in, uh, in our lives at the time that he decides to issue that effectual call to draw us to himself. He's known since the beginning of time who he would select, but we don't know that until he calls us. You know, um, I love there's a definition that I ran across a few years ago for um, the effectual call, and it says the effectual call is the intervention... Okay, let me see if I can remember now. Um, the, basically, the accomplishment in time of the election of eternity past. Eternity past, he, he, he knew us. He, he knew that he would call us. And when the time of that effectual call comes, it's issued, and he again intercedes in, into, into history. And we're going to get to that um, sometime before Christmas, hopefully. No, they've put a, a limit on me. Something I'd like for us to think about a few minutes before we get into the substitutionary to sacrifice. Um, at the bottom of your first sheet there, it says we need to develop a mindset that we are never standing still in our Christian life. God is never static. He has us moving along the right path that he will accomplish all that he has for us in this life. And when he has accomplished his will, he calls us home. You know, we don't, I think sometimes we, we, we feel like we're, we're a Christian. We get in the front door, we sit down, we come to church every Sunday, and that's good, nothing wrong with that. Sometime, you know, on Sunday night if we offer something special. And we feel like we've done what God wants us to do. But God has saved us to take us to heaven. But God has saved us to draw us into a relationship with himself. And that doesn't happen automatically. We have to be willing to pay the price to be what God wants us to be. The little diagram I've got there with the arrows on it. We've talked before, God has a specific plan and path for our lives. Okay? He knows us individually. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what he wants to do in our lives. Okay? He has a plan for us. Now, his path when we're saved, and we're talking about someone who is saved and who is 
open to God's leading. Now, if we're saved and still fighting against God, uh, it's, he, he's going to make it more difficult for us to get us where he wants us to be. Okay. We, but we, God has this plan, and he puts us on the specific path that he wants us to be on. Okay. He knows he wants Russ to be an elder one day. So for all the time that he's been saved, he's been preparing him for that. Okay? He wants somebody else to do something different. All right? Our path, because it's God's path, our path is the right path. Remember? Um, Psalm 23, 3, right under that, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You've heard Dan say over and over. That can well be translated. He guides us in the right path. Okay? That's encouraging, folks. You know? If we are open and we are willing to do what God wants us to do, we can believe for sure that we're on the right path. Now, that doesn't mean that circumstances are going to cooperate with us. There'll be sickness, there'll be sorrow, there'll be great joys along the way. But it will be his right path if we are following him. And that right path will lead to his will being completed in our lives. Okay. Psalm 52, 7 says, I'll cry to God most, I will cry to God most high, I will cry to God most high to God who accomplishes all things for me. That doesn't sound right, does it? It should be just, I will cry to God most high who accomplishes all things for me. Okay? We don't have to worry about what we need to accomplish. If we're following his leading, if we're being sensitive to that, he will lead us in such a way that, that he will accomplish in us what he wants. Now, if we decide that we're going to do it all ourselves, then we've got a problem. He accomplishes all things. The same basic saying, Psalm 138.8, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. I love that verse. You know, I don't have to worry about when I get to heaven, is God going to you know, say, well, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? You know, if I'm sensitive and I'm following him and I'm going to make mistakes along the way, but if I'm following, he will complete in my life all that he wants to do. That's an encouragement. Philippians 1 6, we're all familiar with this. I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, until the day that he takes us home. He will perfect the work that he started. And then Psalm 32 8, now this is my life first. I had to get in here somewhere, so we'll go ahead and do it now. To me, it conveys the idea of moving down a path in a set direction with the wisdom and protection of God. You know, he's, he, he's taking us along. He's going to give us the wisdom we need. He's going to give us the protection we need. And this is a verse that he gave me shortly after I was saved 40 years ago. But he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You know, he doesn't say, I, I, he doesn't save us and say, okay, I'll see you on the other end of this journey and you do the best you can. You know, he doesn't do that. He walks with us every step along the way. He instructs us. 
He teaches us. He counsels us. From a distance? No. With his eye upon us. Wow. That could be good and bad, couldn't it? Because <laughs> he sees some things we don't want him to see. But he, um, he promises to do this for us. Okay? Okay, just a little bit of review. We've said that the Father's plan of redemption was twofold. First, to rescue his children from the dominion and the penalty of sin, and then to restore them to the right relationship with himself. This plan materialized in God's unconditional call. His redemption was twofold. He, he rescued us, and then he restored us. He rescued us from the penalties of sin by forgiving us the sin. He restores the relationship to us when he calls us into fellowship with himself. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that we are called into fellowship with him. That we realize, you know, we're so busy, okay? So busy. We've got to do this, do this, do this, do this, you know? Even in retirement, if you think it's going to get better in retirement, forget it. It's, it's worse. Because <laughs> then you have time to do all this stuff, supposedly. He wants to restore that relationship. He wants to bring you close to his heart. He wants to open the word of God in a way that would just blow your socks off and encourage you and equip you for ministry. I mean, that's what the, 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 the abundant life is all about, is the fact that he's restored that fellowship and now we can walk with him. And he can do and will do through our lives things that we never thought were possible. It's really encouraging. I think the, the plan for of redemption, the plan to restore and to, and to rescue and to restore, was materialized through election, okay? Through unconditional election of those whom he would save. You know, election is, I said, the only way. It's probably, as far as I can see, God can see differently sometimes. Election is the only way the Father can, can be guaranteed to do what he wants done. I mean, he doesn't say, when I, I hope that you all get this picture, and I hope that you do this, that, and the other. Man, we'd be all messed up if that happened, wouldn't we? He says, God, folks, this is the way it's going to be. I'm God, you're not, this is it. John 6, 37 and 39 says, I will, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that he has given me, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. You know, we're going to talk um, in a few weeks about you know, the chain out of uh, Romans eight twenty-eight. Those whom he foreknew, he will glorify. That chain is not broken. There are steps in between there, but that chain is never broken. So let's review what we covered last week. First off, we talked about the cause of the atonement. Man has sinned. He's broken fellowship with God. Okay? He must be, he, there's not... Redemption within, he has no opportunity to redeem himself. Okay, he needs redemption from the outside. So we talked about the cause of the atonement. 
First off, two, two things really. The agape love that he had for his elect must be expressed in the redemption of his children. You know, love that's not given, love that's not expressed is, is not really love, is it? John 3.16 reminds us that God so loved that he what? He gave. That's right. So the cause of atonement, twofold. One was the love of God that he wanted to express into the lives of his soul. The second we talked about is the righteous justice of God that had to be satisfied. His righteous justice must be demonstrated. Romans 3.26 says, So that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him, in Jesus. So the love of God and the justice of God were both the cause and the source of Christ's atonement. Okay? Then last week we also talked in terms of the necessity of the atonement. Okay? The law had proved that no human could attain to the righteousness, the righteous standard that God's holiness demanded. God gave the law to prove to us that we couldn't do it. Man in his pride is determined, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey the law, and I'm going to get to heaven. And they twist the whole purpose of the law. But no human could attain to the righteous standard that God's holiness demanded. Therefore, it was impossible for man to fellowship with God. Only the righteousness of God himself, credited to man, would suffice. Nothing short of that. Matthew 5.48 says, um, Therefore, you are to be perfect. 70%? No. Even as I am perfect. Who in here is perfect? You know? I can't take my hand down quick. To attain this, God must become man and pay the penalty for man's, that man's sin demanded to restore a relationship between God and man. God must intervene. As an act of God's grace through faith, that's important, an act of his grace through faith, man could be united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This union with Christ would credit man with the needed acceptable, keyword, the needed acceptable righteousness. And that's all over Romans 6 if you want to, want to look it up. So we looked last week in more depth into the cause of the atonement and the necessity of the atonement. So this week we're going to start into the nature of the atonement. What was the atonement like? Five parts that we're going to look at. Substitutionary sacrifice and propitiation. Hopefully we'll get to those this morning. Then next week we'll look at reconciliation, redemption, and conquest. And hopefully we'll get those next week. Substitutionary sacrifice. This is a, a core value of Christianity. You know, there are many people who deny the idea of substitution. They say it's absolutely ridiculous to think that one person can or would die for another. I mean, this is absurd. But the um, substitutionary atonement of Christ 
is, the core of, is at the core of our, belief, of our faith. If we don't have a substitutionary atonement, we don't have a faith. We may as well go ahead and you know, leave now. And, and, and The most fundamental description that one can ascribe to the atonement is that it is a work of penal substitution. We don't use that word very often, but penal substitution. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty. That's the penal. He suffered the penalty for the sins of his people, substitution. So it's penal suffering, uh, sacrifice or substitution for his people. When the law was broken, man incurred guilt and was required to pay the penalty of spiritual death. We've talked about this. Ezekiel 18.4 says um, that uh, the soul that sins must die. Period. Okay. That's God's judgment. God's holiness demands that anyone who breaks his holiness must die. When the divine law was broken, I've read that. This left man alienated from God his fellowship was broken, and hostility marked the relationship between God and man. Not a peace, not a loving situation, but hostility between God and man. In order for this relationship to be restored, man's sin must be atoned for. But man was unable to make this atonement for his own sin. His spiritual death and depravity left him unable to reconcile himself to God. Man was without hope. Out of his love for the elect, God appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in the place of sinners to bear their sin, guilt, and punishment, and thereby satisfy God's law, God's wrath on their behalf. Here comes the substitute. God appointed Jesus Christ to stand in the place of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you all know this. He made him, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Each one of us has sin, have sinned, will sin. There's no way that we can pay a price for somebody else. We've got to pay the price for ourselves if that was left up to us. Now, we know that Christ came and he paid that. But only Christ was, was sinless. Only he was in a position where he could pay, the sins, pay for the sins of someone else and redeem us to God. The sacrificial system, sacrifice, is all over the Scripture. Uh, I want to look at a couple of, couple of references this morning. The first one is in Exodus 12, and I'm going to kind of skip around, so you, you may want to just listen, or you, if you want to look it up, I'll kind of tell you where we're going. Uh, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months to you, it is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the ninth, on the tenth of this month, 
They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. And in verse 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep and from the goats. The fact that it's an unblemished lamb points to Christ in his holiness, right? You don't take, when you offer a sacrifice, you don't take a diseased animal that you can't use anyway, and you give the best. All right, verse 6 and 7. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at, at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. The lamb was to be sacrificed, but then the blood of the lamb had to be applied, symbolically applied to, to our lives today. We'll pick back up in verse 12 through 13. And then God says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they were to take this, uh, excuse me, they would take this, this um, lamb, this perfect lamb, symbolic of Christ, okay, and they were to offer it as a sacrifice, and the blood of the lamb was to be spread on the house Again, symbolic of the application, you know. Um, and then when, the, when, the, when God came across the, the land to destroy the firstborn, he would pass over any house that he saw that had the, the, uh, the blood on it. Now that's a, that tells us the, the, the safety that we have. I mean, it's, it's the blood of the lamb that's, that protects us. You know, the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross is what saves us. Apply to our lives when we ask him to, to cover us, ask him to protect us, ask him to be our savior. It's a beautiful picture there. But the most, the most beautiful picture in the entire scripture is in Psalm 53. Excuse me, Isaiah 53. It's one of the clearest examples of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. And this is one that we really need to be very intimately acquainted with. I just want to take the time this morning to read through this slowly and um, point out just a few things. Isaiah 53. Thinking in terms now of our substitutionary sacrifice. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
like a root out of parched ground. He was so, there was, he was no, he was, has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. They're talking about Christ's passion. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Now, he gets into it, into the uh, substitution. He says, I want you to, to, to watch. Now, I use New American Standard. A lot of y'all probably got ESV. But I want you to watch for the word our, or you are, okay? Surely our griefs he himself bore. You know, ours, make it personal. What, what, what? What sin in your life did Jesus forgive? What sin did he bear on the cross? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The, the people around him didn't realize what was going on. They thought God was... Was, was judging him, but he, what, he was really judging our sins in him. Verse 5, he was passed through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being felt on him, fell on him. And by his scourging, we our, are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All iniquity of all people from all time. God placed on, on Jesus on the cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? The transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. Don't you know it was hard for God the Father to, to see his son go through that? But he was willing to do it for one reason and one reason only. He was willing to do that if he would offer himself as a guilt sacrifice for his people. That's how much God loved us. 
says he will see his offspring and will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know, it's, is it Romans? It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and looking for the, what, was, what, was gonna, what this was going to accomplish. You know, and here we see that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's what he was accomplishing, the good pleasure of the Lord. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Okay. Can you read this and doubt the substitutionary atonement? I don't think so. My servant will justify the many. Now, how can he justify a sinful man? You know, God says the soul that sins will die. And when man sins, how can God say, okay, you're forgiven, you're, you're justified? The only way he can do it is right here. He says, as he, Christ, will bear the iniquities. You know, judge, God's judgment stands... Our iniquities are, are, are judged and punished. So God's righteousness is, is upheld. But it's done in, in, through a substitute, through Jesus Christ. It says, Therefore I will lot him a portion of the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Passage out of Philippians 2. You know, the, the, because, he, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for transgressors. Isn't that beautiful? He was perished through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we were healed. It's no light thing that God took the punishment for our sins. We were indebted to him for life, for life and for life. The substitutionary atonement is definitely the core of our, of our beliefs. Okay, let's look for just a minute at propitiation. Propitiation is not a word that we use around very much. It's used, I think, just about three or four times in, in the New Testament. But basically what it's saying is that God's wrath against sin is fully satisfied and exhausted. If God is propitiated, that means that the sacrifice of Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left to do every sin of every man for every time. Jesus bore that sin for us and God was propitiated.
a quote out of MacArthur in Mayhew's book. It says, the significance of propitiation is that it identifies Christ's work as a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Sin may not merely be overlooked. Sin and must every and always be punished, whether in the sinner in hell or in Christ, the substitute on the cross. God has not relaxed his justice, for he himself declares that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Every ounce of wrath that the elect sinner deserved, all the wrath of God would be exercised on the sin of the, in the eternal torments of hell. Let me back up. I'm, I'm altering on that. Every, um, every ounce of wrath that the elect sinner deserves, all the wrath that God would have exercised on the sinner in eternal torments in hell was poured out fully on the substitute in these three terrible hours on Calvary. Three hours he took every sinner, every person, all times. Because of this, there is no longer any wrath left for God's people. God is propitious towards them for their sins have been paid for. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now, not when we get to heaven, there is now, um, what a time to draw a blank, huh? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Did God change his mind? No. Did God decide to wink at sins? No. It's because Christ became our substitute. And therefore, God is propitiated. Okay. He is fully satisfied. His holiness is fully satisfied because of what Christ did. First uh, John 4.10 says, And this is the love of God. Not that we, this, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, Scripture says, no greater love has any man and he would put lay down his life for a brother. Well, Christ laid down his life for us. By receiving the full exercise of the Father's wrath against sin, the sin of his people, Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against sin and thus turned away his wrath from us who, had it not been for our substitute, we're bound to suffer for it for ourselves. God is satisfied because his righteousness has been satisfied. Something that we could never do. We try, you know, we want to say, God, I can do this, I can do it, I can do it. And every time we, we fall on our faces. It's only through faith in Christ and the work he's done. On the cross, after the cross. It's only because he has made his life available for us today that we can walk in a restored manner and walk worthily of him. It all depends on Christ.
each one of us needs to come to grips with the fact that one day we're going to stand before holy God. And we're going to have to give an account of ourselves to him. And when we do that, our sins are going to be in one or two places. We talked about this before. Our sin will be in one or two places. If we have not repented and placed our faith in the finished work of Christ, we will face the wrath of God. Our sins will be on ourselves. And we will spend eternity locked in the terrors of hell with no chance to appeal or escape. Locked into the hell, hell, terrors of hell. You know, back before I was saved and around people that I shouldn't have been, uh, we would laugh and say, well, you know me, I'm going to hell, but I'm sure I'll have a lot of company. You know, well, I believe that scripture teaches that you won't have company, you'll be by yourself. You know, I, I, I envision it as a... Um, I don't know if I should say this or not, but there was a picture that I saw one time about some of the, the furnaces that they had over in Germany. And it was a big round mound, and it had openings all around the sides. And they would just shovel the people in that. To my own mind, and I, I can't give you a chapter or verse, I'm not saying this is scripture, but in my own mind, that's what hell's going to be like. Thank goodness we won't face it. But we're going to be in it by ourselves. You know, and we will beg for a drop of water for eternity and it will never come. And it's going to be hell. <laughs> but we don't have to go there. God has given us an alternative. So if we haven't repented and placed our face in him, then the sin is going to be on us. But we, if we have placed our faith in what Christ promises he will already have taken the punishment for us. You know, he paid the price. So, when we get there, we will be clothed in Christ. And when God looks, God the Father looks at us, he's going to see Christ. And he's going to see if God's going to, Jesus is going to intercede for us. The Holy Spirit's going to intercede for us. He's mine. I've paid his price. Let him in. Don't you know that Sister Dana is rejoicing this morning? Can you imagine the glory? You know how Dana liked to dress with a lot of color and all? And I thought, well, you know, if, if she's dissatisfied to anything in heaven, it's going to be she's got to have a white robe. And she won't have all those fancy colors that she loves so much. Jesus paid it all. But just like the blood in Exodus in the uh, Passover scene, that blood had to be applied. And the blood of Christ has to be applied to us for it to be, uh, for us to be saved. A life of peace and blessing as well as fellowship with God is what we can expect. An eternity of blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. We can't even begin to imagine 
in our wildest imaginations what it's like. We can read the scripture and we can get little glimpses. But it's going to be so far beyond anything that we have ever experienced. It's going to be, we have it, you know. But you've got to make sure that you're trusting in Christ and nothing else. It's not Christ plus my good works. It's not Christ plus something else. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ, and Christ alone. That's our foundation. And we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to fellowship with him. This is it. You know? This is it. Oh, my goodness. I love my Bible more all the time than what's in it, not the Bible itself. I love it more and more all the time. It's a glorious life that he's called us to. Okay, Mr. Matt, you go call us to something. Thank you, Joe.